0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 1, and the word of the Lord reads, And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come up here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to go to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. There are going to be times in everyone's life <clears throat> where they're going to come to the place where they're just simply, there's just no going back. You reach a point where it's a decision that you make or you just simply let things happen around you or you just stumble into a situation and the trajectory of your life will change and there is no going back to the way things were before that moment. Sometimes it's a decision to confront someone that you love about an important issue. You decide that you need to deal with it, and, and, and you understand that if you do, if you make that decision to do that, that, that it could mean that your relationship will be changed forever, but you press forward right? Because, because it must be done, and you know that you can't go back. Or maybe there's a time that you need to stand up for what is right, but you know that doing what is right is not popular at all, and you know that, that if you do what is right, it's going to cost you something, that your life will inevitably change. There are going to be decisions in your life that you just cannot undo. There are going to be choices that you will make that will change the entire complexity of your life in an instant. There's going to be events in your life right, that will happen that will change who you are from, the, from one moment to the next. You will wake up one day and your life is going one direction, and then something will happen, and then everything changes. Perhaps you're, you, you know, it's something of your own doing, of your own making, or maybe it's from somebody else's hand, or maybe it's just because of the circumstances of your life. No matter what it is, there is no going back. And we've all, I think, experienced moments like that. There are times when lines get crossed, when boundaries get crossed, right, that once you pass them, that you were not able to come back to where you were before. Right? There are choices that get made that just simply cannot be unmade right there there there's moments in time where just everything changes and and you will have moments like that as a parent. you will certainly have moments like that as a as a child. you'll have moments like that as an employee or as a student or a friend or even a community member. There will be a point in your life you will decide to do something and everything will change as a result and that's exactly that is exactly where we are in this text. Jesus is at a place to make a decision, and everything is going to change as one of my favorite characters, Gandalf the White, says in The Return of the King, things are now in motion that cannot be undone. Yeah, You know, one of the reasons why I love that story, The Lord of the Rings, um, is that there's a really clear Christian narrative that permeates the entire narrative. Um, the, the, the stark contrast between good and evil, the great sacrifice that's required to finally subdue and destroy the evil one, and the, the emphasis of holding on to hope no matter what the circumstances right is an inspiring part of the story but but throughout this story there are all these turning points there's these there's these changes that, that happen that change everything like Frodo's decision to go out on his own and Sam's decision to follow him or Aragorn's uh, decision to stay and fight a losing battle at Helm's Deep when when all the odds were were against them Right? And there's a series of climactic events throughout the story that inevitably propel the protagonist toward the final battle and the great climax. With every new climax, there is no going back. And even at the end, Frodo himself can't even go back to the Shire because, he's, because everything's changed so much. Things are not the way they were before, and, and that's where we are, is what, is what we see here. There's a tension in this story that has been building from the very first moments when, when Mark opened up, and um, there's a tension that reaches its climax in this text, and everything changes as Jesus marches toward his predestined fate, which is the cross, because that's exactly why, why he came. And this tension begins from the very first verse where Mark declares the truth about who Jesus is, that He is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, the King that has come to the earth. And then at His his baptism, He publicly identifies Himself with broken sinners. Though He had never sinned and needed no repentance, He identified with us so that He could bear our, our sin to the cross. And from, and from there, he gets into spiritual conflict, a conflict with the devil himself in the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days, and he uses the, the, the word of the Lord to defeat him. And Jesus emerges as is nobody from nowhere, um, preaching the gospel and declaring that the time is now, that the kingdom is here, and that, that the way into the kingdom is to repent and believe the gospel. And this conflict with the devil continues and, and, his demon, and his demons continues as Jesus is confronted with a, a demon-possessed man in a synagogue and he demonstrates his power and authority by casting the demon out and simply by saying a word and he does this over and over and over again throughout the region of Galilee. He casts out all manner of demons and he heals people of their infirmities and of their, their illnesses. And Jesus' fame... And his popularity grows exponentially as crowds begin to follow him around everywhere he goes and he continues to preach the gospel and heal people and cast out demons. And Jesus is demonstrating again, over and over again, he is exactly what Mark said he is. He is the Son of God. But then the story begins to change because a new enemy shows up. Jesus continues to battle the spiritual forces of darkness as he continues to cast out demons, but this new enemy lives in the physical world. This new enemy is known as the Pharisees. They're the religious elite in Jewish society. They're the scribes and the theologians, and they're people who are committed to the strict obedience to the law. They are the hyper-religious in, in their devotion and they are politically powerful in the culture and they have authority to enforce the Jewish laws. And they hear about this Jesus from Nazareth and so they come because they, they hear about His teachings and His miracles that He's performing and they go out to see who He is and to find out, is this the Messiah that they have been waiting on? And this begins then a series of five conflicts between Jesus and these men. Five conflicts ultimately that will lead to the decision to kill him. The first conflict occurred where Jesus was preaching in Peter's house and the roof was torn off above his head and they lowered this paralytic man down to Christ and Jesus in that moment not only heals him, but he seizes the opportunity to confront the Pharisees by telling this man that his sins are forgiven. But who besides God can forgive sins? And these men thought that Jesus was blaspheming. Next, the confrontation, Jesus calls out Levi considered to be one of the worst kind of sinners, um, and he calls them to not only believe in him, but to follow him. And Jesus ends up having dinner with these men and and his friends and, and a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. And in that culture it was a no-no. And because of that, this um, hanging out with sinners and tax collectors were thought to make you unclean. And the Pharisees could see see this happening, but they couldn't see the, the hardness of their own hearts. And so this 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 man they thought cannot be the Messiah because he's hanging out with all these low lives, not Realizing that they're just as broken, and Jesus confronts them again and says that He's called come to call sinners to repentance and not the self righteous. And then the next confrontation, the Pharisees notice that Jesus' disciples aren't observing the, um, the, the fast that they observe. These Pharisees made, you know, follow a bunch of man-made rules, and they fast twice a week to prove just how righteous they are before God and just how spiritual they are, and they thought that Jesus and the disciples should do the exact same thing. But Jesus tells them right, the good news of the gospel and, and their old, tired religious system of rule-keeping are just simply incompatible with each other. And then in the fourth confrontation, things began to really heat up as Jesus' disciples picked some grain um, heads of grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees, you know, they, this basically struck them at the heart of who they are as, as Jews. They believed that this was a serious issue because Sabbath-keeping and keeping the Sabbath was, you know, that the Sabbath itself was holy, and that keeping it was, was commanded by God. And, and so they, they had created all these traditions and rules around the Sabbath that made basically doing anything on that day, practically illegal. But then Jesus confronts them back again and turns upside down their understanding of the purpose of the Sabbath, and he says to them that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And if that weren't enough to set them off, if that weren't enough to, to, to get their dander up, Jesus then claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, that he himself has the authority over this God institution. And again, this is indicating that he's not just some man, but he is indeed the Son of God. And this does not sit well with them, because, because they're going to continue to press the issue, which is exactly what we're going to see in this text. So turn with me to chapter 3, verse 1, and it reads, And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And so understand, this, this, this is now the stage is set for the final showdown between, these, between Jesus and these men before things really begin to change. Jesus enters the synagogue, which was his custom, and he was probably there preaching. I want you to notice, this time, it doesn't really mention which synagogue that he's in, or what city that this takes place in. The, the, the text doesn't mention it. Now, most scholars probably think this was Capernaum, because this was Jesus' base of operation. It was Peter's hometown. But the fact is, it really doesn't matter which city that it took place in. What's important is that this was a Sabbath, a Jewish day of worship and rest, and Jesus was in the synagogue most likely to preach. And there in the synagogue was this man with his withered hand. And, one of the de- and, and and what you need to understand is this is one of those details that when we read the text, we just read it, and we kind of read past it to get up to the next part of the story. But, but this right here is a, is a very important detail. In fact, what you have to understand is this this detail right here will shape. If you understand this detail right here, it will shape your understanding of what Jesus is saying and doing. And it it will shape your understanding of how you see the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus. You see it says that he has a withered hand. And this is a detail that helps us to understand why cultural context is so important. Because we live in a different time. We live in a different place. We live in a time in history and a place in the world where people who were disabled are treated as valuable and worthwhile. We live in a time and place in history where we protect people with disabilities. And we work to make their lives more comfortable and we work to make their lives more productive. That's why we have handicap parking. That is why we have wheelchair access to our buildings. That's why that we have, there's so much money that gets spent on on prosthetics and and surgeries. That's why we have special education in the school system. That's why we have special laws for the blind and, and services for the deaf. We live in a compassionate society that is willing and able to invest resources and technology and work into making life better for those people who have disabilities. And we've made it possible for a person who is disabled to do just about anything they really want to do. In fact, I just saw a video where a college football team, um, they hired a man with no arms and no legs to be an assistant coach. And this guy knows his stuff. Right? He's able to do the job because he has enough tools right, to help him communicate clearly and, and to get around the field so he can do his job. And this is not just the exception. I mean, there are people who have no arms that learn to drive cars. There are people who have disabilities who do all kinds of jobs. In fact, if a person is disabled in our society and really wants to be productive and contribute in work, there is a way for them to work and be productive. There's a way to make that happen because we value that in our culture. People with disabilities can live a relatively normal life compared to people in the first century. But this man here doesn't have those luxuries, he has a withered hand, which means it was either deformed or it's either paralyzed. And this could be from birth, or it could be uh, from illness, or, or even an injury. The text doesn't specify, but again, it's not an important detail. What's important is this man's hand is withered, which means it's unusable, right? He can't make use of it. And what we need to understand that this isn't, this is not, right? He does not live in a society where, 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 where people like him are valued. They didn't value people with dis- disabilities. He didn't live in an era where, where people with disabilities were considered to be worthwhile members of, of society. He lived in, in a culture where the hearth, harsh truth was, is if you can't work, you just might not survive. You might not live. They lived in an agricultural society and the number one you know, industry was food, because food, you know, if they didn't produce enough, people would starve, whole communities would starve, whole nations could starve. And the only way to reliably make a living and not starve was to get out and work and produce, and to work hard. This whole idea of working eight hours and being done is a relatively new invention. And the only way to do that was to work. And anyone who could not work, or anyone who had a diminished capacity to work, was not valued by the society as as important. They were valued as somebody that was a burden. And so here's this man with a withered hand, he's in, in essence uh, an outright, uh, um, he's an outcast in his own right because of his infirmity. Not a valued member of his community, but a burden because he has a severe diminished capacity to work, he has a physical defect that makes him in essence less of a man, and and, and this disability severely affects his earning potential and, and because of that it also affects then possibly his potential to get married and have children because Women in that culture really didn't want to marry a man who had a diminished capacity to provide because women and children were very vulnerable in that time, because they were dependent upon strong, able bodied men to provide for them. There was no real systematic uh, welfare. And so understand, it's not simply, he's not just a disabled man here. This is a man whose entire life is defined by this disability. It affects everything for him. His, his, for marriage, or for work, or for children, or for his social standing. It affects his ability to obtain enough food to eat. It even affects his relationship with God because not, no one with a deformity was even allowed to enter the temple. And so this was a man to be pitied. This was a man that needed compassion. This was a man that had very little hope. This poor, pathetic man with his withered, useless hand. Now, before we move on from this, though, there's something that I think we need to point out, and and this man is really a shadow of us. We might not have a withered limb, but we certainly are broken spiritually beyond our own ability to overcome. We're pitiful creatures. And try as we may, we cannot overcome or hide the defect that's in us, the, the defect of our sin nature. We cannot overcome our sin and the effects of our own sin in our lives on our own. And that brokenness and that defect defines who we are. It defines our entire nature. It affects every area of our lives. Our sin has affected everything. It affects our health. It affects our relationships, our careers, our families. Right? And especially it affects our relationship with God our sin affects everything about us. It defines us. And, and we are helpless to do anything about it on our own, just like this man. And so here we are. The stage is set. And this, this pitiful man, this helpless man, has only but one hope. And that's Jesus Christ. He came there on the Sabbath hoping right that, that Jesus would have compassion on him and he would take the time to heal him, and, which is exactly what the, the Pharisees expected. Look at verse 2. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. One of the stunning things in this verse that's really, really easy for us to overlook is the abject hypocrisy here. Because these self-righteous men, right, are hypocrites for for what they're trying to do. Self-righteousness leads to hypocrisy because because what's, what's the purpose of the Sabbath in the first place? It's to rest and to worship. It was a rest and worship God. Well, why would people go to the synagogue on the Sabbath then? It's to come to worship God through the reading of the text, through the preaching of the word, and fellowship. Similar to why we're here. It's to worship God. And that's the reason why you would go to sab- the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it's, and it's to focus on and to worship and, and to honor God. But notice, that is not why they are here. They are not here to worship God, but instead they are there to watch Jesus because what they're trying to do is they're looking for a reason to accuse him. They're looking for a reason to discredit him. They have this agenda and, and, and that agenda does not include worship as it should. I want you to think about the hypocrisy here. These are devout Pharisees, devout Jews who are supposedly sold out for God. They should be there to worship, but instead they're there to dig up dirt On the Sabbath, on Jesus, because in spite of all the evidence, they have already made up their minds. This man is is not from God, and he has to go. This man does not fit their traditional understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to be, and so what we need, and so so we just need to do away with him, right? What abject hypocrisy there is here! But I want you to notice here is that Jesus knows full well. What's happening? He knows full well what they're trying to do. He knows why they are there. In fact, it says in verse 3, it says, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Jesus knows what they're after. He knows that they're looking for a reason to find fault, and he knows that they're looking for a reason to kill him. That's why he said what he said about the bridegroom being taken away by force in chapter 2. He knows this is ultimately going to cost his life. He knows that he's approaching the moment where there is not going to be any going back. If he does anything on the Sabbath, there's no going back. And he knows that that he's basically signing his death warrant if he helps that man on that day. But knowing all this, he publicly calls the man with a withered hand to come up right there in the middle of the room and stand before him right there in front of everyone else. So there's no mistake about what's about to happen. And, and now the tension is really beginning to grow. I mean, because this confrontation has been building and it's come to this critical point. It's the, really the point in, in most movies where everyone's kind of staring at each other, right? Waiting for someone to make the first move because what's gonna happen next will, will shape the entire future. In fact, one of my very favorite moments in all of movie history is a scene in Tombstone where, um, Wyatt Earp and his brothers and Doc Holliday turn the corner and they confront the Clantons and McLowerys in the O.K. Corral. And as soon as they turn their corner and put their hands on their pistols, like everyone's standing still and they're frozen for a moment, staring at each other, you know, waiting for someone to make the first move, and the camera pans to everyone's eyes as everybody's kind of scanning around, waiting to see what's going to happen next. And I, I kind of imagine this might have been like that, that Jesus calls the man to the front of the room, and now all eyes are on Jesus and this man, and all of a sudden the room is so quiet, you could just about hear a pin drop, and everybody's nobody's breathing or even moving because, because they're waiting in anticipation what's going to happen next, what's Jesus going to do next. And then Jesus makes the first move. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. Again, Jesus is a very adept rabbinical teacher. He uses rabbinical logic here to make his point, and he uses an analogy of extremes. And he does so to make it clear, the distinction between the choices. And in essence, there is really only one answer. The answer is to do good and to save life. He has essentially painted the Jews into a corner. right? But they can't concede that. They can't answer. Because if they do, they're going to condemn themselves for trying to stop Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. They know what the answer is. It's to do good, but they can't say that. They can't admit that. Look at their response. They were silent. They didn't say anything. They knew that they were caught. They knew what was right. But it didn't didn't make a difference to them that he was right because they had their minds made up. They had their mind already set. They just simply will not engage in the conversation. It's likened to the pro-choice movement, which rightly could be labeled the pro-abortion movement or even the pro-death movement, because that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about health care. No matter how many times people repeat that we're not talking about healthcare, we're talking about the deliberate ending, purposeful ending of a human life. We're talking about killing babies, and we all know it. The days of when people used to say, well, it's just a mass of tissue— Right? or, you know, it's really not a person because it's a fetus. Those days have ended because, because, because even Planned Parenthood and, and the pro-abortion elites acknowledge the truth that, that what they're doing is they are killing children. That's even to the point where they're pa- trying to pass laws where children can be killed all the way up to birth and even beyond. That's why that they oppose what's called the, the Born Alive Bill, which says that if a child survives an abortion and is born alive, that they can't kill it, Right? But they, want to, they don't want that law to pass because they want to have the right to kill children inside and outside the womb. And the conversation by those who support abortion is always a diversion. It's always directed to a diversion. They try to divert the attention from the real issue. They say that the issue is about a woman's right to health care. This is not about a woman's right to health care. It's about a woman's right to kill her own child. That's the issue. And we all know it. We all know what it's about. It's just they won't say it, because if they concede the point, then they know that they're wrong. That's why you'll never hear them answer the question, which is posed like this. It's okay to kill a child. When? There's no answer for that question for them, right? When is it okay to kill a child? They will not answer. Because the real answer for everyone is the same. The answer is never. It's never okay to kill a child. It's never okay to kill a child. But they can't say that. That's why they have to change the subject because once you admit that you're killing children, you lose all moral authority to do what you want to do. And it's the same exact here. They already know what they want to do is wrong, they already know. They already know that the answer to the question is to do good, but they know that if they answer the question honestly, then they've lost the moral authority to do the things that they want to do to Christ. And so they just sit there in silence. And then in verse 5, it says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hearts, hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Now, in in this part of verse 5, it's not even the entire verse, right? But in this part of verse 5, there is a lot to talk about. Jesus asked them a clear question, but they refused to answer because their minds are made up. And Jesus' response is not what some people would would expect and not what some people would like. But his response was to be angry. And this is really important because because we need to to consider this point here. Jesus, the Son of God, was angry. And again, this is important because this flies in the face of a very common character of Christ in our modern Christianity, in our modern world. Many people want to think of Jesus as this really laid-back, hey, easy-going, non-confrontational, I'm just here to love everybody so it's not a big deal kind of, kind of figure. They, they, they want to think of Jesus as this kinder, gentler version of, of God. The God that really doesn't demand anything. The God that never punishes anyone and never gets upset and would certainly never send anybody to hell. But here in the text, Jesus, right, God in the flesh, was very clearly angry. Because let me just tell you something, brothers and sisters. It's not a popular notion, but God does get angry. And and, and the thing that we need to remember is is the emotion of anger. The emotion of, of anger is not sinful or wrong in and of itself. The Bible never says, do not be angry. It just says, do not sin in your anger. It says, actually, be angry, but do not sin. In fact, under certain circumstances, anger is the absolute appropriate response. Like the time when Jesus walked to the temple and he found that people were, were in the temple, you know, they, make, they created this marketplace where they're selling stuff to people who are coming to worship there, and what does he do? He, he doesn't say politely say, why don't you guys leave, this isn't right. He No, he goes and makes a whip. And he drives people out and the animals out physically. And, and if that wasn't like enough to make the point, he goes in there and he's flipping tables over. Now, the last time I checked that somebody was flipping tables over like that, that person was angry. Jesus was rightfully angry because what was happening was wrong. Like when somebody harms someone you love, you get angry. And you rightfully so. When someone oppresses and subjugates somebody that's weaker than them, it's, it's right to be angry. When, when people are treated with, with complete uh, disrespect and no dignity, it's right to be angry. Right? When, peop- when, when babies are slaughtered inside and outside the womb, it is right to be angry. This kind of anger is called righteous indignation. And it has its roots in the very character of God himself, because even though God is gracious, and even though God is merciful, He is also just. And because He is just, then He will be angry with injustice. That's why it's been said that, that God is angry all the time about sin. Because sin is destructive, sin causes people, you know, it causes people to do all kinds of horrible things to other people. Sin creates death. It destroys lives. Sin is outright rebellion to God. And God is rightfully angry about that. And Jesus is rightfully angry here. Yes, Jesus is loving. Yes, he is compassionate. Yes, he is gracious. But he is angry about sin and hypocrisy. But then notice, it's not just anger that he felt. He was also grieved. Jesus emotionally experienced in that moment grief. This is a different emotion than anger. Right? The word here actually means sorrow. It's akin to feeling a, like, like being brokenhearted. It's the kind of grief you feel when you lose someone to death. It's the kind of grief that you feel when, when something awful happens to one of the people that you love and, and your heart hurts for them. Like when someone you love faces a divorce or when, when your best friend receives a cancer diagnosis. It's, it's that kind of grief. And so Jesus both simultaneously felt anger and grief in his heart on, in that moment. And, and I don't want you to miss that. I don't want you to miss that point. These are strong, overwhelming emotions. Think about the last time that you both felt in your heart anger and grief. Like September eleventh, two 2001, when terrorists flew commercial aircraft into the World Trade Center Filled full of people. I know that I've personally experienced both anger right, and also grief. Many people have felt those emotions. And, and you, there are lots of times in your lives you're going to feel both of those. And that's the emotional place Jesus was. And I want you to notice what the root cause of this overwhelming emotion is. What's, what's causing this anger and grief? It is their hard hearts. Notice what it says. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus is angry, and he is grieved because of the hardness of their hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is the central issue. This is the root problem. This is the root of all of our problems. Jesus is angry over their hard hearts. He grieves over their hard hearts. It's one of the reasons why they will not see that jesus is the messiah in spite of all the miracles and the healings that he's done and casting out demons is because of the hardness of their hearts the reason why they're not motivated for jesus to do good to this to this desperate man on the sabbath is because of the hardness of their hearts the reason why they're holding on to their legalism, the reason why they're they're not recognizing the fact that Jesus has demonstrated over and over again that he has the power to do the things that he says that he can do, and the reason why they're not recognizing that he is what he claimed to be, and the reason why they will not come to him and believe in him is because of the hardness of their hearts. And what you need to understand here, and what I need to understand here, is before we judge these people... Is we in ourselves have had the same problem. Because you cannot come to God, you will not come to God, no one will come to God with a hard heart. That is the issue. And and this issue is one one so many people get upset about. But I'm gonna tell you right now, this is the thing that we need to get clear about. That's why we say salvation is a supernatural work of God. As a sinner, You had a hardened heart to God. As a sinner, you had a heart that was resistant to Him. As a sinner, you you had a heart that was resistant to the gospel, just like the Pharisees. And what Jesus is dealing with here, and what Mark is, is talking about here, is the problem of our sin nature. We have hardened hearts. And this is where so many people will get really sideways, because when we talk about the sovereignty of God... People go, oh no, 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 God can't be completely, totally, 100% sovereign over everything because I still have to have the ability to choose God on my own. I have to have the ability to decide on my own whether or not I even want God. But the problem is that this really misses the point because you absolutely have a choice. I want you to hear me on that. Everyone has a choice. Everyone has a choice. God's general call is for everyone. God calls everyone. Everyone to come to him. The call is open to all people. And once again, hear me. The, the, the call is open to all people. But the problem is, is the sinner will not and cannot respond to the call on his own by his own free will. Why? Because of his hardened heart. That's the issue. You certainly have your free choice, but you won't choose. Why? Because your hard hearts, it is against your nature. Before Christ was in your life, when you were given a choice between God and your sin, you would always choose sin every single time. Between God and yourself, you would choose yourself. In fact, I heard a pastor put it this way. I think this is one of the best analogies I've ever heard. Imagine we were to empty this room completely out of all the chairs. And over here, we put a big old pile of of carrots, and over here we put a big old pile of raw meat, and then imagine we were to bring a vulture in here and turn him loose, which pile do you think that he's going to choose? I don't think we even have to debate about that. We know he's going to choose the meat. Why? Because it is in his nature to choose the meats. Now understand, he has the ability to choose either one. The choices are right there before him. The options are there before him. It is there for him. He's invited to to partake of either one of them, but he will choose right by his nature, because his nature, it is his nature to choose meat. And it's the same thing that would happen if you put a rabbit in here. Maybe not a zombie rabbit, but, (laughs) but if you put a rabbit in here, what will they choose to eat? He will choose to eat carrots, because it is his nature to do so, even though his, the choices are still open to him. And it's the same thing with us as sinners. As sinners, we had hardened hearts. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our sin and trespasses, right? We were dead, spiritually dead. Our nature was to be spiritually dead, un, unwilling to listen and to follow God. And in that condition, left on our own, we're not going to choose God, because it's against our nature. We, by nature, are children of wrath. No, no, no. The the choice is certainly there. The choice is right there in front of us. But guess what? When you're someone whose nature has not been changed, you will do what sinners do, and you will continue to deny the truth and your unrighteousness, and you will continue to push back against God. You will continue to rebel against Him. You will choose your sin. Why? because your heart is hardened, just like these Pharisees. Notice this, the truth is staring them in the face. It's right there for them to see. It's clear for them. Jesus healed people of all kinds of ailments and diseases. He cast out demons. He spoke with clear authority. All of the evidence is there. But they cannot get past themselves, why? Because they have hardened hearts. What they need is not more miracles, what they need is not more information. What they need is not more confirmation. What they need is a heart transplant, what they, which is exactly what Jesus has come to do. Paul, in the book of Romans, helps us to understand that because super, salvation is a supernatural work of God. Paul says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I want you to understand that no one seeks for God. I want you to hear me on that. No one does. You didn't. I didn't. We were transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit piercing our hearts and convicting us of our sins. That's the catalyst. That's the change. The Pharisees are not convicted of their sin. Their hearts are not pierced. They will not turn. They will not repent. They will not choose Christ. Why? Because of their hard hearts. They didn't think that they were in sin. They didn't think that they were unrighteous. And until their heart is changed, until they are convicted of their sin, they're going to continue to have that same hard heart. They need a heart transplant, like it says in Ezekiel what God promises, the work that only God can do. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone, your hard heart, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Pharisees needed a heart transplant, and unless God supernaturally does that in their heart, it is not going to change them. And here's the thing that you and I need to come to terms with. It was not in God's plan to change them. It wasn't in his plan to change them. It was God's will for the Pharisees to condemn Jesus. It was God's will for, for the Romans to put Jesus to death because Jesus' death is not a cosmic accident. It's not a byproduct of something that, that kind of happened. Jesus' crucifixion, the result of this day, these things were where they decided to kill him, These were not an accident. Now understand, God did not make these men do what they do. He did not make them sin. But it is God's design to use them and their sin and their hardened hearts to achieve his plan in history. It has been God's design to use the worst people and the worst kind of circumstances imaginable to achieve his ultimate plan of good and redemption and glory for himself. And understand, it was God's plan all along for God's son Jesus, to suffer and to die so that we could be set free. I want you to understand that. Wrap your head around that. It's been God's plan all along for that to happen. And God uses these men's natural hardness of their hearts and their natural rebellion to achieve his purposes because God is sovereign. I mean, that's why we believe that Romans 8.28 is true. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the truth that we can lean on because God is sovereign. And so here Jesus stands being rightfully angry. Why is he angry? Because of the destructiveness of sin. Sin produces hard hearts where we don't even see the truth And he grieves. Why does he grieve? Because of the effects of sin. People are lost and and don't know that they're lost. People are broken and don't even know that they're broken. The Savior came in the flesh and they can't even see it. Their eyes are closed. Their ears are closed. Their hearts are hard. Their consciences are seared. And notice just how hard their hearts really are. It says, Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. I want you to think about this. This pitiful, pitiful man who who was clearly disabled. His life is completely defined by this disability. A man who's been seen as a burden, as an outcast in his community. A man whose prospects were were very grim. A man that people, that if they really, really loved God, should have really had compassion for. This physically broken man is standing before Christ and Jesus doesn't even touch him. He doesn't even physically do anything at all. He just says, stretch out your hand. And this man obeys and he's restored completely. I want you to think about this. This man's whole life has changed. Changed. He has been healed. He has been restored back to complete health. His prospects for life are exponentially better. His prospects for work and marriage and for his prospects for acceptance, his prospects for not having having to be viewed as a burden any longer has exponentially gotten better. He has walked into the door as a man who has a visible defect and he walks out completely and totally healed. This is a divine miracle of God. They have witnessed the promise of God. This is the foreshadowing of, of the redemptive work Right? of Christ to make all things new. This man is a picture of the coming salvation of Jesus, the, the, the life and the renewal that are in Christ Jesus. And these Pharisees who claim to love God should have, in that moment, all stood up with one accord and shouted to the top of their lungs, Hallelujah, praise the Lord! It should have been the response. And these Pharisees in this moment should have celebrated, but instead they were embittered towards Christ. They didn't see this as a good thing. They didn't see this as right. All they could see was their man-made traditions and their predisposed notion that Jesus was not from God and that he had to be stopped. And so they desperately looked for him to do something wrong, and healing on the Sabbath was was for them wrong enough. But, But again, as we said last week, there's no law at all against doing what is good on the Sabbath. In fact, you're encouraged to do good on the Sabbath. And also, technically, If you notice the details here, Jesus didn't actually do anything. He didn't actually technically work because he never actually physically touched the man. He never did actually anything that could be construed under the law as working. All he did was speak a word and and say, stretch out your hand. But that didn't matter because their hearts were hard. Their minds were made up. The Pharisees, it says, went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him, how to, to destroy him. And again, the emphasis here, right? I want, to, I want to emphasize the hypocrisy and the hardness of their heart. Not only did they refuse to see the miracles that, that Jesus had done for what they are, not only did they dismiss right, his authoritative teaching, not only did they witness the restoration of life right in front of their eyes, not only did, did they come to the synagogue with their hearts in the wrong place because they came not to worship but with the intention of finding dirt on Jesus, and not only were they willing to falsely accused Jesus of Sabbath-breaking because of this miracle, then they went out to conspire with the Herodians against Jesus. I mean, it's one thing bad enough to plot somebody's murder, but then to do that on the Sabbath, and then to do that with your worst enemies. right? Because the Herodians were their political enemies of the Pharisees. They were a group of people who supported King Herod, and the Pharisees hated King Herod because of his relationship with the Romans. Herod was getting rich because he was supporting the Roman army. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees, they hated each other, but they, they both had a common enemy, Jesus Christ. Jesus was becoming very popular, and he was threatening to undermine the political and religious power of these two groups. And so both of them wanted him out of the way. The Pharisees, the men who studied the word of God, men who obeyed the law to the point where that they devoted themselves to fasting twice a week. I don't know about you, but like, think about it. Not eating twice a week. They could not see the truth in front of their eyes. And the reason why is because they had hard hearts. And when Jesus healed this man, both of their lives have changed forever. This man's life was immediately better because they, of, of his restored physical body. And Jesus' life took, again, one giant step toward the cross because Jesus' gospel now has become the, the, the instrument that burst the wineskins of the Pharisees. And so they just decided to make it official. Jesus simply had to die. Now to bring this to a close, there are a couple applications I think that we can take from this text. And I think the first one is, is that um, we need to be compassionate. We're surrounded by people who are lost, who are broken, who are desperately hurting all around us. People's lives that are falling apart. I mean, it's easy for us, you know, to see people like this as a burden. It's easy for us to think, man, they take up too much of my time. Man, you know what? You know, I'm tired of listening to that. It's easy for us to look past them, but what they need is our compassion. Right? And we're to be compassionate the way Christ was compassionate. We need to meet them where they are and love them and help them. But understand that this also helps us because it helps us to keep our hearts tender so we don't become self-righteous and hard-hearted. The second thing is to be joyful for others. When when people's lives get better, like when they get a a promotion, when, when their marriages are restored, when their children recover from an illness, or when they make a little extra money, or maybe they become wildly successful, we need to praise God and be joyful for others. A sure sign that we may still have a little hardness in our hearts is the fact that we might feel jealousy or or bitterness towards someone because of their good fortune. We need to be joyful for others no matter who they are. And the third is we need to be angry over sin, especially in our own lives. Sin is heinous. It is destructive. Sin kills. Heart you know hearts it destroys relationships and lives we need to hate it we need to have the same heart that god has for sin god hates sin it angers him and we should be angry about sin especially our own sin right and we should also be angry about egregious sins like the destruction of of the marriage the institution of marriage in our culture and the sin of abortion the fourth thing that we need is to be repenting and believing. You're, you are saved when you repent and believe the gospel. Once you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved. It is a done deal. God has the power to save you forever. But those who are saved continue to walk in repentance and faith. It is a part of the, the fruit that they bear. It's an ongoing relationship. We walk, if we fall in sin, right, as we are all prone to do, we need to repent and continue to trust in Jesus as our Savior. We fall into sin. We don't need to, to beat ourselves up. We don't need to, you know, you know, put ourselves in a spiritual penalty box. We just need to repent and continue to trust in the promises that God has made to save us. And then as a bonus, i got one more. I didn't have the, I've already had the bulletins printed before I, I came up with this. But one more is we need to be in prayer. And we specifically need to pray that God will change people's hearts. We need to pray that God will intervene in their lives, that we need to pray that God will bring conviction from the Holy Spirit, that God will, will open their, their eyes. We need to pray that the gospel can actually be heard and actually received because, because only, only God has the power to change a hardened heart. And believe me, God can change the hardest of hearts. And let, us, let that be our prayer. And Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word again and the clarity in which it speaks to us. And I pray, Lord, right now as a church that we would come together as one accord and we would pray for hearts to be changed. We pray, Lord, that you would pierce people's hearts that the Holy Spirit would descend upon them and bring conviction of of their sin to them and make them ready to hear the gospel. When they hear the gospel, they would respond to it and put their faith and trust in you, Lord God. That, Lord, your call goes out to all creatures, Lord, and we pray for them all, Lord. We pray that it would be your will that you, would heal, that you would save them all. Our hearts, Lord, are for our family members and our community members and our friends and those that we don't even know, Lord. That you would bring into their hearts a stirring of the Spirit that, Father, you would convict them, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would move in a mighty way in this country, Lord God. That there would be a revival that would start right here in this church and in this community, Lord God, that would spread across our entire country, Lord. A revival of people whose minds and their hearts are open to the gospel and they would receive that and put their faith in you and repent and believe the gospel and be changed, Father. We pray, Lord, that you would work that mighty miracle in our lifetime. I pray, Father, that you would make every one of us people who would go out and share the hope of Jesus with every person we come in contact with. And that, Lord, we would be in prayer every day for them. And that we would preach the gospel to them at every opportunity. And I pray, Father, that you would bless this church family. And you would help us all to grow, to be more like Jesus. And, Father, that we, Lord God, would repent and continue to believe. We thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.